This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of season two of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I welcome to the show Arc members and small business owners, Taylor Hubbard and John Hayes, to discuss the importance of small business in driving change by sharing their perspectives and lessons learned not only in running successful small businesses, but also in standing up, speaking out, and taking action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate in their communities as small business owners and as individuals. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world. And our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. Now, this begins with our three-step process for personal transformation to anti-racism. First, erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. Second, educating yourself about anti-racism. And third, building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. Now, this process, as I've said before, is designed so that any one person can make a difference by committing to anti-racism and anti-hate and then influencing others to transform and to start a mini-movement that grows and combines with other mini-movements by other individuals to eventually become large enough to be a movement that changes the world. In other words, any ordinary person can make extraordinary things happen. You know, almost 70 years ago, an African-American woman named Rosa Parks made this happen by starting a mini movement, ironically, not by standing up, but instead by sitting down in the front of the bus in a seat designated as whites only and refusing to move. Her act of courage influenced others to join her and her mini movement of one person became an extraordinary movement of hundreds, then thousands, now known famously as the Montgomery Bus Boycott, and is recognized as one of the key events that sparked the civil rights movements of the 1960s, and actually was the event that initially brought the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to national attention as the spokesperson of that boycott. But few people know that this movement would never have been successful if it were not for the support and actions of the small business owners in the black community of Montgomery 
You see, the boycott of the buses, for that to be successful, black workers still had to find a way to get to their work and back home. Many of them, most of them, worked in segregated white areas, which were far away from the black segregated areas in which they lived. They needed a replacement for the bus that was affordable for them as well. And it was the small black taxi business owners that came up with an idea that rescued the plan. Working together, they pooled their taxis and lowered prices to the equivalency of what the bus fares were at the time so that the people participating in the boycotts could still get back and forth to work while also still making ends meet by only paying the same amount for transportation that they had been paying by riding the bus. But then as the success of the boycott started being a problem to the segregationist city government, they passed a minimum city tax fare and had the police enforce it, making the taxis no longer affordable for the bus boycotters. They forced those small black business owners to increase their fares. They thought they would break the back of the boycotters. But again, it was small black business owners in Montgomery that rose to the occasion. This time, other business owners pooled their resources and their own personal cars and formed a rideshare program. Now, of course, this was before smartphones, so they didn't have the benefit of Lyft and Uber apps to help organize and set up the rides. So a local pharmacist, he worked to develop a very detailed schedule and to match riders with available cars with a schedule to get them where they needed to be on time. And he used his pharmacy, his store, as the dispatch hub. This worked beautifully and allowed the boycott to continue, famously continue. Without the black business owners, the small business owners of Montgomery, having the courage and character to stand up and take action, it's very doubtful that the Montgomery bus boycott would have been successful. Small businesses are the oldest form of business. And still to this day, they're the most common form of business by a long shot. Many people don't know how critical small businesses are to the United States economy. The impact is dramatically underestimated. Here's just a few facts. Just in the U.S. alone, there's over 32 million small businesses. And they account for, believe it or not, 99.9% of all business entities and 90% of the business population. We hear all the names of the mega firms, the huge companies that have world-famous brands. We hear them all the time. Obviously, we hear about Amazon, Walmart, Apple, Google, Facebook. I can go on and on and on. But we forget that it is small businesses that account for almost 65% of newly created jobs in the United States. That's over a million and a half jobs. 
And although big businesses dominate the stock market, they dominate the news cycle. You know, the, the, the CEOs and founders of these businesses, people know by name, right? They're on social media. They're talked about on social media. So they're in the lexicon of pop culture. But it's small businesses that really build personal relationships with us as consumers. Personal relationships. Emotional relationships with us as consumers. Think of the neighborhood bar or small restaurant where you're a regular. Everybody knows you when you walk in. The owner, the bartenders, the servers, the waitstaff, even those who clear the tables. And every time you come in, they welcome you like your family coming home again. Hard to replicate that. With your relation with the Apple Corporation, no matter how much you love your iPhone. See, this close relationship, it can actually help shape your beliefs. See, what if one day you see a sign in your restaurant? your favorite bar. And the sign says, we respect your pronouns and all are welcomed here. And then you see a person come in the restaurant or the bar who identifies as trans. They walk in and the owner and the staff treat them just like they treated you, like family. This might have you start thinking a little bit differently. Think about your barber or hairstylist. These people help shape your outward appearance. And in doing so, actually help generate even internal pride. It's a very close connection. And they do all of this whilst talking to you. I know my mom loves going to her stylist just to hear the neighborhood gossip. He's her friend. And I'm sure that many of you have stylists or or barber who's also a really good friend. You feel when you go in there that you're home. But what if some changes were made there one day you went in? What if their decor started showing images on the walls of all sorts of different ethnicities, different shades of people, different sexual orientations and identities, even physical abilities, and a sign that says, in diversity, we trust. And you see a rainbow flag appear and a BLM sign you might start to think differently. Because of this personal connection that small businesses and business owners make in the community, it's greatly underestimated the impact that small business and business owners have on the community in terms of attitudes. Yes, they make a difference in the economy, as I talked about before, but I would argue even bigger difference when it comes to attitudes, the feel of the community, the culture of the community. Making people feel wanted and welcomed and part of and not an other who's apart from. In our last episode, Lori Kelly told a story about the importance of a neighborhood bookstore in Oakland, California called Marcus Books. This store has played an important role for decades in providing learning content and materials on black history and on black stories that is readily available in the store, but not 
really available in schools, in libraries, and in other bookstores in the community. Marcus Books has played a big role in creating access for mainly black people in a black community to learn about black history and the richness and diversity of black culture. And Lori, who happened to be white, talked about how she was a young white college woman, but who also wanted to learn about black culture and black history. And she went to Marcus Books and she was welcomed in the store even though they knew she had no money. She was broke as a joke, is what she said. She had no money to buy books, but they welcomed her in. They would let her sit in the front of the store and read books, books that she could not afford. And this made her feel welcome, made her feel a part of the community. So again, it is important to remember that, yes, small business owners have the unique opportunity to not only positively impact the economics of their community by offering needed goods and needed services, as well as jobs, but they even more importantly have a greater opportunity to do like Marcus Books and create and or influence positive culture or culture change in their communities because of the personal relationships and connections they build. Their ability to influence beliefs, thoughts in the community. Emotional credibility. That's what they nurture over time, if they choose to. The question is, will they make that choice? Will small business owners have the courage and character to potentially put their business at risk by using that emotional credibility to influence their customers, business associates, people in the community that are consumers by standing up, speaking out, and taking action to drive positive change and spread anti-racism and anti-hate. Today on the show are Taylor Hubbard and John Hayes, two small business owners who have stepped up and have made that choice. They're doing it. And they are here today to not only share with you their learnings and perspectives on being successful small business owners, but to also share what they are doing personally and through their businesses to drive positive change and spread anti-racism and anti-hate in their communities. Taylor Hubbard and John Hayes join me next. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. Welcome back to the Arc of Change. And as promised, joining us now are our two special guests to provide their perspective on small business and its influence on spreading anti-racism and anti-hate in the community overall. And those two special guests are Taylor Hubbard and John Hayes. Taylor and John, welcome to the Arc of Change podcast. How are you both doing today? Just great, Donzel. Good to wonderful. see you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Well, fantastic. Again, thank you so much 
for joining the show. This is one I've been looking forward to greatly. I know you both, but uh, many in our audience probably do not. So let's start off by having you talk about yourselves and tell us uh, kind of your, your story, your beginnings. Taylor, maybe we'll start with you. All right. Well, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm Taylor Hubbard. I, I own a um, portrait uh, and wedding photography studio. Uh, I've got a storefront studio located in Waconia, Minnesota, um, small suburban community. And um, I, I, even though my studio is located in Waconia, I live in Shaska. So I, I, I live in a different community and I have a business in a neighboring community. Uh, and I, um, am married to my husband, Martin. We've been married for 18 years. We have a son, Ethan. He'll be going into second grade. Uh, I just turned 40 this last year. So I kind of hit an age mile. Thank you. <laughs> kind of hit an age milestone this year. Uh, and I've been working in the photography industry for uh, nearly the past 20 years. Uh, I, after high school, I went to, uh, a Votech school for photography and I've been doing it ever since as far as uh, a career path. Um, I know, you know, you know, as far as the in, the in the beginning, I don't know if you want me to let John go, but I can kind of talk about where I started. Otherwise, I can kind of let it let it be. So we'll stop, we'll stop there on your, the beginning of your story and then we'll let you get into some okay. of the business pieces uh, next. But, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Sure. I live in Victoria, which is just a stone's throw from both Chaska and Waconia. And this is in Minnesota uh, so we are for those in a, who don't live in Minnesota. They're referring to Minnesota. Right. And I was going to say it's a small suburb of uh, Minneapolis. We're about 25 miles from the center of Minneapolis. Uh, I'm a little older than Taylor. I'm 63. I'm married to Lisa, and we are sending our youngest child of four off to college this year. Uh, I own a small brewery in Victoria, and uh, I started it about 10 years ago, motivated mostly by the desire to start a business. Mm -hmm. And I know we'll be talking more about business later. Uh, I am still an avid runner, and occasionally I find time to read, and my particular interests are uh, biographies and history. Cool. Uh, right now, yeah. I'm reading about uh, James Garfield. And my future plans uh, include retirement. Don't know what that looks like exactly, but I have a feeling that Lisa will uh, have a significant role in shaping that. <laughs> I'm sure she will. Well, thank you uh, both for, for telling us a little bit about yourself. So let, let's turn to, to small business. Earlier in the, in the podcast, I talked a lot to provide some context to small business, and you obviously both are small business owners. Um, maybe, uh, uh, Taylor, you can start by just Telling us a little bit more about your business, um, you know, how did you start it? John gave us a little bit of an idea how you started his, but how did you start yours? What are some, what were some of the key milestones, the growth that you've experienced? Uh, what, what are some other things that you'd like to tell us about your small business? And I know your husband also owns a small business. So tell us a little bit about small business ownership from your perspective. Oh, man, so much to tell about what it's like to, to own a small business for yourself, what it's like to, um, yeah, have your spouse own a small business, and then what it's like to have two small business owners, you know, in the family together. Um, a lot of, you know, trials, triumphs and trials and tribulations, right? Uh, for myself, you know, I, I, 
I started this career um, really, you know, I started it as, you know, a junior in high school taking a photography class. Um, and I really fell in love with the, the scientific aspect of photography. I know it sounds crazy. Most people would fall in love with, you know, certain other elements of it. But for me, it was really the, the science, the development of film, the, the printing of images um, on paper, uh, the chemical process of it. It sounds uh, kind of interesting. And um, it, it, my fascination grew. Like I said, I went to college um, and I got a degree, uh, associate's degree in photography. And when I was there, you know, just kind of learning more of my craft, adding those technical skills, adding the lighting, adding the software. I felt like I fell into at school. I kind of um, I attended school at a unique time in my industry that the photography industry itself was changing, that in the past um, that industry was heavily dominated by men. Um, the gear was heavy. There was a lot of, you know, technical aspects to being a, a photographer. Um, there was not a lot of females in this field. And going through school, there was definitely, I was part of one of many, part of a shift um, with the advancement of technology, with cameras changing, with digital photography. Uh, it broke down some of the barriers that was kind of, you know, holding maybe some people back from it or maybe piquing other people's interest in pursuing that as a career. And so coming out of school, um, like I had the ability to learn, like I said, that foundational aspect of, you know, the science part of it and mirroring that with the, the, the technological aspects of the future, the, you know, the digital piece of things. And, and I worked for, I was, I blessed enough to be able to get a job um, working for someone as they went digital, uh, a studio in town in Waconia here. Um, the gentleman I worked for, he had uh, multiple sclerosis. And so he was really physically limited, limited to like be able to, you know, go out and take portraits outside. And so um, there was somebody that worked here that kind of fulfilled that role. And then she left and I kind of elevated and stepped into those shoes and just kind of working hard and um, working for him for seven years, he said he just, he couldn't, he didn't have it in him anymore to, to, to run it as a business. There's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of time involved when you're a business owner, which I know we'll get into. Um, and so I took over his um, assets, created my own LLC and phased out his um, business. And I've been running my own business in this community for 12 years. And, uh, always learning, always, you know, always trying to pursue and, and, and what, you know, the, the things that I fell in love with uh, photography wise, they kind of shift and change over time. Um, and that's, uh, I know I'm talking a lot, so I'm gonna let John go, but that's kind of, you know, part of the his, historical aspect of my business as far as how we got into it. And, and, uh, yeah. Well, that's great. It's clearly been successful if you've been in for 12 years, that's a long time. <laughs> believe it or not, for a, a, a small business. Uh, John, what about you? You told us a little bit how yeah. you started, but uh, man, a brewery, I'm sure a lot of folks want to understand how that happened. So um, I started Enki Brewing with a friend of mine. His name is Dan Norton. And we had known each other since the early 80s when we worked together. And we had uh, shared interests both in uh, drinking beer, brewing, and in running. 
our careers kind of took us in different directions. His around the world and uh, mine here, different different fields, but we stayed together. Uh, and we had always toyed with the idea of uh, starting a brewery. Just you know, just talk over beers for decades. Um, and then we were reaching the twilight of our careers, and um, the laws in Minnesota had changed recently, making it more attractive, more feasible to start a brewery. And so Dan and I said, well, if we're going to do this, it's really now or never. Mm -hmm. So that was 10 years ago. And uh, you had asked about key milestones. Yeah. First key milestone for us was the day we actually opened the doors and started pouring beer. Because uh, there were a lot of things that had to happen for us to be able to do that. You know, we had to get equipment. We had to get all the regulatory approvals. Uh, we had to get a brewer, someone who knew how to actually make a commercial scale uh, beer. Uh, and so that actually said that we were real. Uh, the time that we could actually open up to the public. Uh, second key milestone for us was when we moved our business from our startup location into our current facility. You know, we went from a facility that was about 3,000 square feet to this building that is 20,000 square feet for us. Um, and instead of renting, we own the building, which really committed us to the community, which I'm, I'm happy about. Uh, so that was, a, that was a key second step. And then for me, the third key milestone has yet to happen, and that's going to be when I turn the business over to the next management team. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you both uh, for sharing that. And uh, John, I miss, how long have you, has the brewery been in, in business? It's 10 years. 10 years. So 10 years and 12 years. Um, and many people don't know that 20% of most small businesses, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, fail in the first year. And uh, and and fifty percent uh, fail within five years uh, when they're startups. With both, sounds like yours was a startup. I think Taylor, you took yours over from someone, but still, you had to you had to run it. What what mm -hmm. were the if there were if there were one or two key challenges you can identify that you faced that you felt were critical for you guys to stay in business and beat the statistics, be in business over ten years. John, what would one or two things be that you felt were key challenges you had to overcome to be where you are today? Yeah, well, the um, you know the thing about business is uh, ninety percent of what I do at Enki is the same as what I was doing for other people uh, in helping them run their businesses. So the, the real critical aspects are have a business plan, have financial controls in place, and then. Um, unless you're a solo business, it's it's selecting, motivating, uh, training uh, employees. And so it's really your people that are going to make or break you. So I think that's uh, really the most critical things for us uh, in being successful. And, and timing, it certainly didn't help uh, hurt that uh, we were getting into the brewing business when it was just a rapidly growing industry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, John Taylor. What about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, my answer would be very similar to John's. I think some of the you know key things that you need to really focus in on to be successful are knowing your financials, you know, um, knowing your numbers, knowing your worth. I think in my industry, um, you know, with with it being uh, you know an artistic 
you know, commodity of sorts, um, you know, there's a lot of room for people to kind of be able to price themselves, you know, for whatever they feel is justified for compensation. Um, and that can be a, a, across the board, just depending on who and, and how much, you know, experience they have and what they feel justified in making. And I think that knowing your worth is extremely important. There's always going to be someone that um, says that you're too expensive or there's going to be people that say you're too cheap. <laughs> uh, you have to know what you're worth and you have to price yourself to be competitive, but also price yourself to make profit. And that's first and foremost, um, because, you know, all the time spent away from your family, all the hours you labor, that has to be worth something. Mm -hmm. And you need to walk away with money and you have to feel good about making money at what you do at the end of the day. I think one of the other thing, too, is, uh, you know, he, that John touched on is service and quality, um, whether that's yourself. I, I have a couple of employees. Um, you know, knowing that your team is just as qualified and they give good service and knowing that you give consistent service and consistent quality. Um, you know, you build a brand and that brand has to reflect um, what you want it to reflect and it has to do that all the time. Yeah, that's great. You, you speak about brands, um, you know, people initially think about big brands. You think about Apple, right? They think about, um, you know, uh, Walmart as a retail brand, Amazon as an online brand. They think about these huge mega companies, Coca-Cola as a brand. Um, but one thing that people forget is, although the stock market is driven by these big brand names, these big companies, it feels like they run the economy, but they really don't. The energy of the economy is really you guys. It's small business. Um, and I talked earlier, you know, small business uh, makes up 65% of the job growth in the United States on an annual basis. Over a million and a half jobs are created by small business. Um, if you look at the number of businesses that are in the United States, over 99.8% of them would be considered small businesses, right, in terms of the number of them. Do you, what, what, do you ever feel um, a pressure or what responsibility do you feel in terms of helping drive the economy? in your communities, helping provide jobs in your community. In other words, supporting the economic well-being of your communities by having a small business there. Uh, okay, I'll start. Ahead, John. I'll start. John, you want to go? <laughs> Donzo, I thought you were going to uh, direct to one of us, but I'll, 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 I'll join. I was so excited so, about asking that question, I forgot to do that, yeah, but no, go ahead. No. Well, um, so I mentioned earlier that 90% of what I do is the same as what I was doing when I worked for somebody else. The other 10% um, was pretty unexpected. And part of that is really about the reaction that we have in the community to our business and that sense of responsibility we have to the community and also to our employees. Um, as a business owner and having people whose livelihood is dependent on the success of our business, there is a sense of responsibility to make good decisions and, and to be there for our employees. Um, and the same thing has happened with the community. And I didn't think about this as I started the business uh, of the sense of loyalty that there is between the business and the uh, community. You know, when we were uh, in the midst of the, of the pandemic, 
and we had to shut down. I remember it was uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, 2020 that we had to close our tap room. And so we scrambled to open up a uh, takeout business, right? Take out the beer, take yes. out the food and take it home. Yes. Uh, we did incredibly well during that time. And it was because the community was paying us back uh, showing their loyalty to us. Wow. And so you do reap what you sow in the community. Uh, so that was the other part. I mean, I didn't realize in the community um, how much they would look to us uh, for support. So our response to that was get involved. Sometimes it's donating our time, going to festivals and events and pouring beer and and doing doing that kind of thing. Sometimes it's donating our product to other people's charitable activities. Sometimes it's donating our place. We have an event center here and we have local charitable organizations that uh, ask for um, some assistance in, in hosting their events and connecting with their audience, promoting their cause. So we're very active in all of those charitable organizations and also, uh, just the community organizations um, that support the sense of community and spirit that we have here in Victoria, whether it's Volksfest, our annual festival, uh, classic car shows, the farmer's market that we host here in our parking lot. So being a active member of the community uh, is, a, is a thing that we enjoy doing, but it's also something that we feel responsible for, too. Awesome. Thank you, John Taylor. Uh, ditto. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, um, John just has so many great answers. I, I don't, I mean, yeah, we're a touch point in the community. I think about some of the, uh, all, you know, my photographic services and what, what they provide. Yeah. Anybody can come from anywhere and book me as a photographer, but the, my main clients are, you know, within this uh, radius of this community. And when I do other aspects like photograph, um, you know, individual and team um, leagues, you know, that's servicing, directly servicing your community. And and uh, people really enjoy seeing that local face there, knowing that if there's, you know, questions or anything that, that they know where they can turn to that I, I have a, a shop in this community and you know that reputation of being there uh it, it's important to me and um i i like to joke that you know while i don't live in this community physically um i call myself an like an unofficial townie uh i know all the i'll know all the happenings around around my community um but i have a lot of love for this community and and i think you can love a community that you don't live in just as much as one that you do reside in because you know the people in that community are wonderful and the service to them and in reciprocations you know the service back to you it goes both ways it's a two-way street and and you feel it and you think about the impact i think about sometimes like you touched on don well it's like i'm a small small business i'm not even in terms of even in terms of small business i'm small right i'm pretty small and and i'm okay with that i don't need to be a big small business um but i think about i i host a halloween charity every single year and that charity is bringing your kids in costume and at first it was donating physical items to the food shelf 
Um, and I would take those and collect them and move them over to our local food shelf. Well, with the pandemic, we decided to switch it over to a monetary donation. Um, and they can also provide more for that. Um, you know, they can purchase a lot more than, than what, um, you know, the physical items bring in. Mm -hmm. And this last year, uh, I raised, you know, nearly, I think, $800, just my little business for the local food shelf, just in, and, and, and I shouldn't say I raised it. I just provided the service that people enjoy seeing a milestone of your kid in a Halloween costume. People donated and they took their time out to do that. And that, and, and that really makes a nice impact in, in the community. And I can't remember, I should bring up the statistic of how many families that feeds in this community. Yeah. And that matters. Mm -hmm. that's awesome both 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 answers really tremendous and uh we're, go we're going to actually end our first segment of the interview right there uh we spent this first half really talking about small business what is it about john and taylor's background how they've really uh you know done a tremendous job of having businesses that have beat the trend of what really happens to most small businesses that start out uh and and the impact that they're making in their communities uh the next half of the interview, we're going to pivot and start talking a little bit more in depth about the impact that small business can have in the community, in particular in influencing the way communities think about culture, about things like anti-racism and about anti-hate. So come right back with us uh, mm -hmm. on, on the second part of this interview. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Ark of Change, and we are back with Taylor Hubbard and John Hayes in the first half. Uh, they really did a great job of helping us understand the importance of small business, how they started their small businesses and generated some success, uh, and even some of the impact that they're having in their communities, supporting uh, their communities. Now we're going to pivot a little bit more to specifically talking about uh, influence. And uh, one of the things that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot more small businesses than big businesses. Big businesses don't get all the publicity. They impact the stock market and they make all the news, right? When they are doing something, Nike makes a stand against something and makes the news. Uh, and they definitely have a, a big hold on social media. But small business has people hearts because people spend time in the local bar. They get to know the bar owner and the bar owner becomes their friend and can influence them. People spend time at the barber shop, whether they're going to a barber to get a men's haircut or they're going to the hairdresser to get their hair styled in a different way. They get to know that hairdresser and that stylist. They get to know that barber and they become like a friend, someone that can influence their beliefs. Um, when they go get their their photo taken with their family. That's a moment that becomes precious to them. And there's a connection made with the photographer that's taking the picture, that's helping them get in the right positions. It becomes personal. Um, so I just want to hear a little bit from John and Taylor. Um, number one, have they seen things in, in their communities that have troubled them, whether it comes to racism, whether it comes to bigotry, whether it comes to bullying, anything that you would classify as hate that you're, you've seen that's become more visible to you in your community. And maybe you can give us some examples, whether it's, uh, again, 
anti-racism or trying to espouse thoughts on diversity, trying to drive conversations with customers that you've had or, or suppliers that you have in terms of, you know, you trying to help influence their thoughts, their beliefs as a business owner. Mm-hmm. And how tricky can that be as you're trying to run your business? Big mm-hmm. question, but we've got some big thinkers here that are going to provide us with perspective. So, John, you want to start? Okay. Uh, and I don't propose to have all the answers at all, but I, but the, yes, I do hear racism, social injustice, bigotry. Um, I also see it. I see it because the existence of our community being almost all white is a product of systemic racism. And I know that now because of the work I've done with ARC, um, educating myself. Um, I've heard, for example, um, that Hispanics trying to get into the country from the the border are only doing it uh, because they're uh, lazy and they want a government handout. Um, I've heard that from people who do not think of themselves as racist. Um, I've heard people say that, um, you know, the problem in the black community is that there's no role models. There's no black fathers in the household. And um, again, it's infuriating because these people say this with the apparent attitude of just stating a fact and not knowing, not digging into, you know, wait a minute, why do you think that is? It's not because they're black. It's because of the circumstances that have been generated from decades of racism that have produced an unfavorable environment, not because of someone's skin color. And so you asked us if it's surprising. Yes, it's it, it's surprising and infuriating to hear people's ignorance that leads to this bigotry. And it's infuriating that some people just want to state their position as opposed to being curious or open-minded about, well, why is it that we see these things? Which would be a first step towards making some positive change. So, um, you know, I mean, to me, the first step was educating myself. uh, And that started uh, with uh, the, the murder of George Floyd and seeing all the unrest, the rioting, and the anger that that triggered. Um, And that led to a conversation with my sister. And she said, well, don't you understand what white privilege is? And I said, no, I don't know what it is at all. And then I learned a little bit about that. And that led me to reach out to you, Donzel. Mm -hmm. And you informed me of an organization that you were forming, ARC. And... um, that's been a great opportunity, first of all, you know, to, to be a part of your organization and, and educate myself and learn a little bit how to have conversations with others. And we'll maybe get a chance to talk a little bit about that more. Um, at Enki, we've, and I should say, you know, I've been a little bit more public sometimes uh, about expressing a viewpoint, anti-racist viewpoint. And I have to tell you, uh, it's encouraging every time I do, every time I s- put a post out there that says something that may be anti-racist, 
Um, I think it's going to trigger a lot of negative reaction and it triggers just one or two negative reactions, but a whole slew of positive reactions. So that gives me encouragement and it emboldens us to, to speak out further. So um, there's a lot of things that we can do. We can even talk about some of our hiring practices and even tipping practices and why I've gotten away from supporting tipping at Enki, but I don't want to take up all of it. Maybe you can turn it over to Taylor. John, that was a great intro. Though. I know you've got some really, so we're going to get back to you to hear about some of the other things that you've done. Uh, Taylor, if you could uh, tell us your perspective, but I'd also like to hear from you uh, around, have you also seen misogyny? Um, because I think sometimes uh, for us as guys, we don't see it. You know, it, it's like, like John said, if you're white, you, he may have been blinded to that racism existed in his community until, you know, his eyes kind of were opened. Uh, you had the conversation with his sister. Have you have you seen racism, but have you in other hate? But have you also experienced misogyny or people treating you different or even as a business owner because you're a woman? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, I mean, visually you can't see because this is a podcast, but I'm in an interracial marriage. My husband is black. Um, Our child is biracial. And, you know, this has been like a pathway of many, many years um, of kind of, uh, you know, being in the community, kind of seeing things, um, learning when to speak up, learning when to speak out, um, learning when to let certain things go. Uh, it's, it's a challenge every single day. And I think about my husband owns a business, um, a bigger business than my business and how he's treated and how he's viewed in the communities that he has his businesses in. Um, and it's difficult. It can be really difficult. I mean, just this morning, he was just telling me about how someone called him, you know, buddy. And it's like, he owns, and I know it doesn't sound like a lot. I know it sounds, but it's like that microaggression, you know, of being called mm-hmm. boy or being called buddy or yeah. whatever instead of sir or the business owner. And, you know, people trying to qualify you. Yes. Right. And that's what I face a lot is people dismissing me, um, making light of what I do. I know there's a lot of photographers out there and I am fully supportive of people who want to follow their dreams and, and the work that entails of, of making that happen. But a lot of times people regard my career as a hobby or that it's a part-time deal um, or that my husband brings home the sole income and I this is just fun spending money. And that's just <laughs> wow. not the case. I, you know, I bring in 50% of my household income and I have overhead that I pay as a business owner and I, you know, have other, you know, expenses that you pay as a business owner. And this isn't a hobby. This is what I, you know, challenge myself to, to do day in and day out as a career. And, uh, it's, it can be really discouraging when someone just dismisses you, um, and belittles you. And, uh, and then also qualifies, you know, your skill level with the equipment that you use. No, no, it's not the camera. Like it's the person behind the camera. You know, that's like saying to a painter, wow, 
you must have a really nice paintbrush to make that happen. No, you know, it's just a tool. You know, I could take an iPhone and, and I mean, you know, granted it would, you know, it'd have some challenges there versus the professional gear I use, but I'd still be able to achieve and garner, you know, great results from that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, I could probably go all day. I'm more curious to hear about John's tipping policies. You oh. <laughs> <laughs> let you let into a good, a good uh, intro, but um, you know, it's, it's challenging and you in, um, I, I was talking to, to this about this with one of my, um, employees, you know, uh, I feel like sometimes as a woman, I have, um, two routes I can go when I'm challenged, um, with people, I can really, you know, be very confrontational and blunt and really, I don't know what you would, I mean, would you term it as aggressive? You know, even I say, Oh, I'd be aggressive, but maybe that's not aggressive. It's just being very forward. Right. And very honest, or I can, haha, you know, try to, um, gently kind of, you know, uh, make my case, make my point without being labeled as, you know, you know, the word that it's associated with females when they're too forward. Right. Um, I think those are two routes that, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say it on here, but that, that oftentimes, you know, gets put into, into practice and, um, it's difficult, you know, when you're faced in that fork in the road of how you, how you handle, how handle challenging situations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just terrible that, um, unfortunately, both John and I knew what you were talking about. You didn't have to say the word. Mm-hmm. We both were nodding. Yeah. And it's just, it's very, it's just terrible that that's the situation we're in. And when you told me before, some of the things that people say to you, particularly the men say to you, I couldn't believe it. I, I just couldn't believe it, uh, to be honest. And it's like, it's very hard for me to believe. I know John said, you don't want to talk in absolutes. It's hard for me to believe that a guy would say that to me. Uh, some of the things that they've said to you. Um, you know, making assumptions. So, so anyway, but let's, let's move into some of the stances that you've taken. So John, you've taken, you, you've gone out there and, and, and done some things to make a point, um, to start changing people's behaviors. Some of them favorable that people giving you great feedback, others, not so much. One is the yeah. tipping policy. Tell about, tell us about yeah. this. Cause I think it's really important. Sure. So, um, so tipping, the history behind tipping is racist. And there are people who will argue that that's not true. Um, but I believe it is true. And it, it, uh, in the U S it occurred, uh, as a way not to pay, uh, black laborers a wage. And instead they would depend on tips, um, from customers. And and that may or may not be relevant to what we see today with tipping, but nonetheless, it has a racist history. And you talked about misogyny. And then I was hearing Taylor talk about what she's experienced herself. Um, I've talked to every one of the women in our business, and they've all experienced misogyny, all of them. And um, all of them have had uh, either jobs in the service industry or yeah, it's still a service industry when you're working in a uh, uh, plumbing shop and you're, you know, at the cash register. Yes. Uh, 
And in in our service industry, where you're providing a service to uh, people coming out for a, a meal or something to drink, tipping is expected. Um, and um, everyone that I've talked to has said that they've had particularly male customers treat them and they felt like they were forced to you know, accept uh, poor treatment because it would affect the tip that they were going to get. And so I just don't like tipping even today because of what it does um, to particularly female servers um, serving some male customers. Yes. The other part I don't like about tipping is it distributes the, the income that's generated uh, for that service unfairly to the front of the house, neglecting the back of the house, which, by the way, if you look at the back of the house, across many businesses, back of the house, excuse me, yep. across many businesses, it's it's more often people of color. So yep. you have income distribution that is skewed towards people who are white. Yes. And so I don't like it for that reason as well. So in order to address that issue, I said, let's get rid of tips. We'll add a service fee and we will distribute it equitably across all of our employees that are involved in providing that service. Mm -hmm. To the customer. Um, some people liked it, some people didn't. Some people didn't like the fact that I made a comment relative to the history of tipping. Um, but at the end of the day, I did have a lot of people say, I get what you're doing and I appreciate that. And so that's what I hear. That's what I choose to focus on. And we still do it. By the way, it is such an ingrained practice that that is, <laughs> Taylor said, pick your battles. That's not necessarily the battle that you that's going to be a very popular one to pick. But nonetheless, I, I still discourage tipping. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it, it's not only has, again, racial overtones, but all sorts of discriminatory overtones. Uh, and research has shown that people get higher tips based on their appearance. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you have a, a, someone who's larger in body frame, they may not get yeah. the same tip. Um, if you have someone yeah. that... Um, you know, maybe they decide that they, their, their hair is pink or they, they have piercings or something. They may not get a high tip. And what we're trying to do is say, you know, this, this is America. And we, we all um, are different for a reason. We celebrate diversity. And we'll come, come back on some of the other things, John, that you've done. But, Taylor, I, I want to get to you because you took a stand and you decided to run for city council. You didn't have to do that. I don't think you, awesome. you did it to fight against hate or anything. But it still put you in the crosshairs. You didn't have to do that. You could have stayed a low profile. But to me, that is a that is a form of taking a stance because you're a role model that people see. Um, so, so tell us about that. Anything else you feel like that you have done? Okay. So, yes. <laughs> I am an elected leader in this um in this community, um, being the community being Chaska, because I am a city council member, not not the not the community that my business resides in, but um, yeah. Sometimes I ask myself if I maybe was a little crazy because my business is named my name, and you know, you you know, your reputation as a person is your name, right? My reputation as a business owner is my name too, mm -hmm. and they're one and the same. But I'm also the same person whether I walk through these doors and and pick up a camera or whether or not I'm walking through the council chambers um, with my, you know, 
laptop in hand, ready to make decisions. Um, the decisions that I make as a council member are, you know, the strategic decisions to, to benefit the community of Chaska. Um, I don't take that position lightly. Um, every thing that I look at and review and deliberate about, uh, it's all very important because it impacts the lives of every person that lives and resides um, works or visits the community. Mm -hmm. um, that's an important role. And I didn't fall into that role because I had an ax to grind because I had something to um, prove. Um, but I found as I have sat in this role that, that the, not the community, but that some folks maybe need to be, um, you know, open their eyes to the idea of what leadership looks like and that leadership doesn't all look like the same person that's representing them. Yeah. And that it's yes. good to have diversity um, within leadership in a community. Um, it brings unique perspective to all the issues, whether it's, you know, building or, you know, social things that affect a community um, across all the departments, across all of the boards. And I think that uh, I can lend a perspective being that um, I'm a woman. I'm, like I said, just turned 40. <laughs> I have a young child. I'm a mother. Yep. yep. Um, and, you know, I, like I said, live in a home where, you know, my husband is black and I'm white and we, you know, see some of the challenges that some, maybe some other households don't see. Um, and hopefully I can lend a perspective that will open the minds and hearts of other people around me. You know, when I got elected, uh, somebody came to, up to me or, you know, and said, um, you know, what's going to happen with your kid on these long council member or along along city council, you know, meetings, you know, who's, who's going to watch your kid? Yeah. My husband, that's who's going to watch my kid, you know? And, Duh. um, yeah. And, 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 and there was, there was a time when I had to bring my son with me to a work session um, because my husband was running late with, with his business and was going to come down and pick him up. And someone said, Oh, for, if we're letting this happen, can I bring my dog to what? the meeting? That really happened. And, wow. and you know, I snapped a little and I, um, you know, it, like it makes your jaw kind of hit the floor because you think, my child isn't an animal. My child's not a dog. My child's not a puppy. Um, it's my child. And uh, I still have a responsibility to be here. And I have responsibility to my son. And I can do both things. Exactly. And that's okay. That's right. So it just, those are reminders for me that it's very important to, even though um, I understand that a lot of people, if they have a lot of things on their plate that they say, I can't do what you do. I can't, you know, do all these things. 
um, because I can really just focus on this. That's okay. I get it. Um, but if I'm okay with, with, with having these different, um, entities inside of my life that I want to be seen to see, to say, Hey, you can have a career, you can have a community role and you can also be a mother and it's okay. And a wife and a person, you know? So, yeah. That's tremendous. Um, again, I, I, and you know, we are called the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Um, and again, our vision is to build a, a racism-free world, but it's also to, to build a world that's free of, of hate and non-acceptance, non, non, uh, you know, kind of being able to see everyone for who they are and value everyone for what they bring. And, and, and so our mission is to provide the inspiration, education, and support to transform and practice and spread anti-racism and anti-hate, which includes all of the things that Taylor is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things we try to do, as John talked about, is, you know, really make sure that our philosophy of personal transformation to anti-racism and anti-hate uh, is, 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 is pushed out as much as we possibly can and leveraged by more people. And there's three steps that 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 we we are always trying to employ. And the first one is erasing ignorance about racism and hate. John did a great sort of personal commercial about this. He talked about his own journey, and it started with that. And then secondly, it's educating yourself about about anti-racism and anti-hate, because it's not just about saying they don't exist or I'm colorblind. It's about doing something. And you both have talked about things that you're doing. And the third is then building that character to stand up, to speak out, and to take action, which, again, the three of you are, are actually doing. And so I was wondering if you can give us a couple more examples. And I know between your business life and your personal life, it's a little bit blurred. But what are a yeah. of, one or two more examples of things that you have done uh, or that you are doing to spread anti-racism, whether it's what your sister did for you, John, which is to talk to you about, uh, you know, about something and say, hey, have you, do you know what white privilege is? Have you had that situation where you've had to talk to one of your friends, or I know you, you, uh, you did some diversity work within, within, uh, within the business, uh, and Taylor, maybe you could think about the same thing. Have there been a few any instances where you could talk about where you've had to take that stand? You just gave us one, but any others where you've talked to folks in your own personal network about whether anti-racism or some sort of other anti-hate. Uh, whether LGBTQ, whether misogyny, what are a couple of other examples you can give um, the, our listeners around what you have done to try to spread anti-racism and anti-hate? Taylor, we'll start with you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so my being a, a visual career, um, I used to not really think about it when I would put together advertising, um, you know, mailers and things of that nature. Um, I just kind of picked my favorite pictures or pictures that worked or, you know, for high school seniors, what school do they go to and, and things of that nature. And, um, you know, having a nice ratio of, um, you know, um, you know, different people, uh, you know, male versus female or whatever on the mailer. Uh, but in the last few years, I've really tried to make it very intentional that, um, I display people of color on my mailers that they're prominent. Um, and, uh, and just kind of putting that out there. Um, I want people to see themselves in what they see, you know, people, what kids are excited. That's a, a milestone in their life 
uh, that they, they're excited to kind of reach that that point. And um, I want them to receive something from me that that showcases, you know, everybody in the in the community, um, even though, like John, I mentioned, you know, our community is predominantly white. I want to make sure that people know there are, there are others in our community and that this is a milestone that's important to, to everybody. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I had a senior that um, was, uh, I'm blanking, um, that was referred to themselves as, as they, they, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that I do my due diligence to, to respect that and honor that and honor them and, and their choice and, and to also be really honest that if I accidentally mess up to apologize, you know, because that's me having to rework myself and re-educate myself to respect them and um, at where they are at and um, and kind of bring that forward. And 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 I, I think just and I know a lot of it is engaging and because and, a lot of the work that I do is based in that high school senior portrait graduation portrait realm yep. is is really just you know, embracing the people that walk through my door, embracing who they are, embracing what interests them, um, and trying to, to engage with them and trying to, um, make them feel really good, um, about who they are at that moment. Um, and just, and that's all that they need to be. So I hope I answered your question. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And I think it's underestimated the impact of just visuals, just visuals to make people feel that they have been seen and that they are not only welcome, but but valued and respected. Um, I'll just give you a simple example. This weekend I was in Chicago. By the way, most of the restaurants I went, uh, the same tipping policy that John just talked about to make sure everyone's treated fairly in the background oh, nice. is not forgotten. But uh, there was one small restaurant that a friend of mine, Colin, Colin McGillicott, who's an ARC member and was uh, a guest on the podcast, I think, episode two of this year. But uh, but Colin told me to meet him at this uh, this uh, Vietnamese restaurant. Uh, and I went to the restaurant and on the wall or on the window facing the street was a sign. This may not mean a lot to you, but it meant a lot to me. It basically said, presidents change, but Wu-Tang is forever. Again, that may not mean a lot to you, but it meant a lot to me. I knew right away what they meant. Uh, and they were saying, we're welcoming everyone. When you go in there, you saw so many, you saw different shades. Every shade you can imagine was in this small restaurant. Um, and, it, and it was all good, all just just peace and, and harmony. But So to me, those visuals, small business have the power to do that and make a difference in their community. But go ahead, John. Well, you know, it's... I, rather than get into a couple of specific examples, and I can just think this week of two where, you know, I've t- had to talk with someone about um, appropriate behavior, um, respect. Uh, I, I, here's what's happened for me. And, I, and I'm thinking back to what Taylor said about how do I have this discussion? When do I have this discussion? When do I let it go? And so forth. Um, the first thing I do, I, may, I try to make it clear that I'm an anti-racist, period. Um, and second, as an anti-racist, um, I have to call it out every single time, consistently. Um, and 
there's different ways you can do that. Um, the approach I take is to not be uh, confrontational because my goal is to move a person, not fight. Mm -hmm. So I think back to the strategy, the business strategy we created for Enki when we got into business 10 years ago, we had a two word business strategy, be friendly. And when there's conflict, the natural tendency is to fight, yeah. but fighting doesn't really get you what you want to achieve. Yeah. Uh, it's, a not, it's not the best way to get your interests met unless it's a last resort. So what we try to do is find the way, the friendly way out of conflict. Yes. And usually that starts with trying to understand the other perspective. So I will challenge something by asking a question. Why would you say that? Or why would you think that? Help me understand what you just said there. And try to engage a person in a dialogue of something that I think of being racist or misogynistic or um, just insensitive. You know, why would you have that attitude towards homeless people? You know, lumping them all into the same category of just not wanting to work. Really? What makes you, you know, how do you support that idea? Um, so that's where we tend to go to. I hope as a company of trying to understand first and then sharing your perspective after you've learned a little bit about the other person's uh, perspective. And that's great. Um, I, again, I just got to mention this. I was in Chicago this weekend and Colin, Colin McGillicott, again, just a great guy, but really kind of personifies what John just talked about. He's also an unabashed anti-racist, but he believes he can change people through conversations. So when he came to meet me for lunch, he was wearing a hat that said, in diversity, we trust. And he says he wears that hat purposely because he knows there's going to be somebody that's going to stop him and be like, what do you know about that? Why are you wearing that? And then he can say, hey, how about if we have a conversation to talk about it? And he said more times than not, they get in a conversation and he's able to get them to see something from a slightly different perspective. So that's that's really, really yeah. great, John. So I'm going to give you both kind of a, a one last opportunity. If there's a singular message that you would like to leave our audience with, um, here's your opportunity to kind of share that. And uh, John, we can start with you. Sure. Um, so for most of my life, I was naive. Um, the last, especially the last couple of years have opened my eyes to what a huge problem that we have in our society uh, with racism and other social injustices. Um, and uh, I've learned that uh, there are some bad people out there, few bad people. Um, the bigger problem is uh, what I call silent complicitness, yeah. Uh, which gives um, not credibility, it gives, it gives permission to the people who are behaving badly. Yeah. And, and so the, the fight is to educate and give voice to all those silent people yes. that yes. Uh, appear to be in agreement with the bad, the few bad ones. Um, but I know that they're, they're not in agreement and they're just uh, not prepared and not comfortable speaking out. So I th think that the, uh, the work of ARC 
is profoundly important. It's given me voice because I think back to when I was uh, 20 years old and I encountered blatant racism for the first time. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. Um, and now I feel much more prepared and confident uh, to address issues, not necessarily to fight, but to address issues and hopefully move people. Uh, and I recognize it's different for different people. Um, some people have a much difficult, more difficult time speaking out and standing up. Uh, those people definitely will benefit from joining ARC. But in the meantime, there's something that we all can do. And I think, Donzel, you, you, uh, you uh, uh, taught me this, and that is get out and vote. Vote for the people that will help make these changes happen that we need for our society. So... Well said, John. Thank you. Taylor. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, I, I guess, you know, lots of thoughts swirling inside my head. As a small business owner, um, I guess the final thoughts are, you know, appreciating people, you know, in support of small business and the recognition of the, the, the tireless work that small business owners, you know, provide um, to the community and to, you know, and to their employees and, and to themselves. And, um, and, uh, and then also just, you know, you know, loving people first, you know, being there for, for, you know, for the, for the people that need that and being a part of that community and also knowing when, you know, when like John had mentioned, when, when things are not right, being, having the courage to, to stand up and and be a part of that change to make things right i think you know giving that voice to those that feel voiceless you know and and giving the opportunities to those that need that um i think that that's all really important and and you know we're all part of a community together and we need to have real conversations with each other you know to change um, to be better. Uh, that's really important. And, um, whether that's, I guess, as a business or an individual, it's really very important. Thank you, Taylor. Well said, uh, as well. And look, I just want to thank you both. This has been so incredible. Um, and you know, for you to share your, what I would say are very impressive stories. First of all, to people in our audience, who are small business owners who may be struggling or not sure if they can make it, or those who are thinking about starting their own business, you've proven you can make it happen. You can be successful. You've had trials and tribulations. You've had some tough starts and stops. You've had to make tough decisions, but you've made it work. And you've done it while also living your own reality of supporting your community and doing what many small business owners are afraid to do. And as John said, the, the sort of the silent majority in the middle who would rather not really speak out. You guys have said, you know what? I'm a small business owner, but I'm going to have the courage and the conviction to stand up for what I believe in. I am going to speak out. I'm going to do some things publicly. I'm going to change some policies here and there, but I'm also going to talk to people close to me and I'm going to make a difference. And we're not going to change every single person out there. You know, there's like John said, there are some people that, that are bad or that too far, you know, you're not going to get them back. It's the people who don't have the courage to speak out right now. It's those who are given that permission, as John said, or that power to the ones who are making and doing these bad things. 
you have two great examples, audience, of fantastic people who are running small businesses and yet have the courage and conviction to stand up and do what's right. And they are to be applauded. And I want to thank them both for inspiring our listeners today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Taylor. You're welcome. Thank you, Donzel. Thank, thank you. Um, appreciate that. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about ARC, donate to our cause, and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.